Hello and welcome to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson and today we're going to be talking about childcare and the childcare system in the UK. How much it costs, who uses it, what the government can do to make it more affordable, more effective and more accessible. We're also going to be talking about what it's for. So I'm delighted to be joined by two of the country's great experts in this issue. Christine Farquharson, a senior economist here at the IFS, who works on education and childcare, and by Neil Leach, who's chief executive of the Early Years Alliance. Let's start by asking, what is the childcare system in the UK? I had a lot of experience of it. 15, 20 years ago when my children were very young. Other people here may have children in the childcare system. Others may have had no contact with it at all. So how does it work? I always use three C adjectives to describe the childcare system in the UK. Constantly changing, complicated, and costly. Complicated really comes down to just the sheer number of programs that we have out there to support families and children with accessing childcare and early education. I count at least eight of them split across three different government departments. So it's not a straightforward system for anybody, including parents, to navigate, not by any stretch of the imagination. But those eight programs broadly split up into three different areas. The first, and the one that probably most parents are most familiar with, is the program of the free entitlement. These are the free or funded childcare hours that are provided through the Department of Education. All three and four-year-olds are eligible to access a free part-time place through that free entitlement, 15 hours a week during term time. If your parents are both working, then you get 30 hours a week. And if you're a particularly disadvantaged two-year-old, you also get 15 hours a week through the free entitlement. But there's also support for childcare that comes with the tax system in the form of tax relief, either through employer-sponsored childcare vouchers, which are now being phased out, or the new program, Tax-Free Childcare, which is being introduced to replace them. And that looks like the government sort of allowing you to not pay tax and sometimes not pay national insurance on the money that you end up spending on your childcare. If you're somebody who's working and on a low income, and in particular, if you're accessing universal credit or legacy benefits like working tax credit, then there's a sort of third leg of the childcare support system for you. And that looks like subsidies of 70% or 85%, depending on your specific circumstances. But a, a very large proportion of the spending that you put onto childcare actually then gets reimbursed and you get that money back through the benefit system. Those are the three kind of big parts. There's probably also a fourth part that we can think of, the fourth leg of the UK childcare system. And that's grandparents and family and friends. That's the informal childcare that isn't being paid for, isn't being subsidized, isn't really part of how the government thinks about the childcare system, but nevertheless is quite an important part for many families of how they experience that system. So Neil, Christine has really set out the set of programmes which support families and has quite rightly mentioned the role of grandparents and so on. What is the shape of the formal childcare sector in terms of what sorts of providers there are, how many people use them and the role of local authorities as opposed to the private sector? So there's quite a mixed position, Paul, in as much as we have private, voluntary, independent, we have state-run provision at this particular point in time. And, and that, I would suggest, is a result of what has really been a, a piecemeal creation of what we seem to be the early years system at this particular point in time. So different governments, different ministers have added to it as we've gone along. So it is a pretty complex position. The one thing I, I would add, because I think Christine, you've, you've really described accurately the whole system itself. But what we 
tend to have a bias towards is when we talk about the early years childcare system. It is just that, care. We don't talk about education. And I think a lot of the programs that have been developed have been predominantly about getting parents back into the working environment and predominantly, dare I say, mums. And that's where I think we differ from many other systems where they look at it from an education perspective and a long-term investment. We seem to deal with it just, as I say, to predominantly get mums back into the work. So it's a hybrid system. It's a confused system. It's been pieced together over several years. And I'd suggest if most people looked at it objectively, they would say, I wouldn't have this system in place. Well, we've got quite a selection of adjectives there, haven't we? Piecemeal, confused, hybrid, complicated, costly, and another sea of Christine's that I've now forgotten. <laughs> that was constantly changing. Constantly and I think actually, changing, yes. That, that works changing. really well with what Neil has said, because at the moment, I completely agree that we're focusing really hard on this, this per- parental labor supply and helping parents to work. It was not always that way. And one of the real features of England's childcare system is that this real back and forth. At one point, we're focusing on early education, then we focus on parents, then we're back to education. And the fact that, you know, as I, I've talked to some of my colleagues, I talk to people in the sector, and some of them say, this is absolutely insane. Why are we giving childcare to two-year-olds whose parents aren't in work? Like, they don't need the childcare. It's the working families who need the childcare. And then you speak to other people and they say, the 30-hour offer is really weird, isn't it? Because we're giving it to these parents who are working, who are higher income. And we know it's the disadvantaged children whose parents aren't in work who need that early education the most. So getting those different priorities to line up and getting people to even acknowledge that there are many things that you want to try and target at the same time, that's, uh, that's somewhere where the UK is possibly a little further behind other countries too. It's an interesting point, if I could just interject there, just to say that I literally came away from a conversation with a, a mum who said exactly the same thing, that prior to actually having a child, she thought all the support that was given was basically about employment. It's only when she had the child that she realised how critical it was from birth that children are supported and they're educated. And so, you know, I think there is this confusion about the purpose of our early years provision at this particular point in time. I'm absolutely clear. It's about developing young citizens which do not become a burden on society, whether that be through health, whether that be through crime, who contribute to our revenue streams, et cetera, et cetera. And by that, I don't mean, you know, go-getters who want to step over people. Qualities like kindness and people that will look after this world, and that is all about education. So I think we need to get back to that rather than all the rhetoric at this particular point in time that seems to be about balancing the books, financial equations, Nobody talks about what's in the best interest of the child. No, that's very interesting. And, and it, I mean, you're absolutely right, Neil and Christine. The perceived and the stated reasons for state support have changed over time. I remember in the 2000s, there was a lot of focus on early years education, particularly for deprived children, particularly for those from more difficult backgrounds, because there's such good evidence that really high quality interventions, at least from formal childcare and early education, can make that big difference to young children turning into or becoming more productive adults and well attuned to society. But at the moment, of course, and particularly even more at the moment with the cost of living crisis, a lot of this is very focused on costs to parents and parents being able to go 
to work. And unquestionably, the fact that I don't think we've been clear as a society what we're looking for from this system has made it much more complicated than it needs to be. I mean, one of the things that, uh, in a sense, is surprising, given what you've both said, which is in many other countries, there's more clear focus on this as uh, an educational activity and developing young children. Now, you'd think that would be more expensive than providing care, as it were, to allow parents out to work. And yet, we certainly perceive that childcare is much more expensive in the UK than in most other countries. So why is that? I mean, do we have a clear sense of what is driving that? I think the answer, actually, dare I say, is quite simple. And that is when you look at what's happened in the UK over certainly the last 10 to 15 years is that we have chronic underfunding. We've had it literally for decades, as I say, and eventually it catches up. When you look at the percentage of investment that we put in, the percentage of GDP compared to other OECD countries, we are actually a fraction of the mean average. And yet, when you look at other tables, we appear at the top. But unfortunately, those, those other tables relate to how expensive our childcare is. So we have some of the lowest investment, and yet we have some of the highest childcare costs. And yet, I would suggest that government struggles to see that there's a link between the two. If you put little investment in, somebody has to pick up the tadpole. And I would just say one thing on that, and that is that back in 2018, I think this is important, we were tired as an organisation of constantly hearing this government has invested 3.6 billion, 4 billion, whatever it happens to be. So we said to the government, well, if you think that you pay enough money for the free entitlement that Christine alluded to, then show us your computations, show us your figures. That's not an unreasonable request. If you think that you pay enough money, two and a half years later, after a freedom of information request, having to go to the information commissioner's office because the Department of Education refused to provide that information and they appealed against it, two and a half years later, they had to provide us with their data. And their data said this. So these are not my words. Their data said that to adequately fund the free entitlement, would cost an additional £2 billion. They predicted specifically that by 2021, the hourly rate that you'd have to pay for a three and four-year-old would be £7.49. And yet what the sector was paid in that very same year was £4.89. They then went on to say that we accept, if we don't adequately fund it, that prices to parents of younger children who do not qualify for the so-called free entitlement will increase by up to 30%. So the government knowingly underinvests and knowingly appreciates that that underinvestment will be reflected in higher costs to parents. Their words, not mine. And that's why we have this ridiculous position whereby we are, yes, one of the most expensive countries in the world when it comes to investment. I think what you're saying essentially is that because the government underfunds the hours that come for free, if you're buying anything additional, you're effectively subsidising those free hours. And, and that's why, for example, the costs for the under twos have gone up so fast over the last few years, even before the cost of living crisis. Yeah, Paul, it's important to, to recognise that almost every single year I'm, I'm sort of asked by the low pay commission to appear in front of them to explain why it is that the early years sector pays such low salaries. The reality is about 70% of our costs relate to people. And again, a practical example, this time 
three years ago. So we're a membership organization. We represent about 14,000 members out there in terms of nurseries and some childminders. But we are unique in as much as we also operate 65 settings, all in areas of deprivation. This time, coming back to the point, three years ago, we had a complement of 132 settings. So we have closed half of our settings. We don't make profits. We don't make money. And yet we've had to close those settings. And that's because they are grossly underfunded. And that's the consequence of underinvestment. So, Christine, simple, um, Neil says, um, <laughs> uh, simply underinvestment from the government, which makes it expensive for anyone paying for themselves. Is it, is it any more complicated than that? Or, is, or, is, or is, that, is that the whole answer? I think Neil makes a really good point about particularly how we square different ages. And one of the complexities and nuances that makes this policy area so difficult is actually, it's not enough to just look at zero to four-year-old children. You really have to look at what's happening with one-year-olds, with two-year-olds, with three and four-year-olds quite separately, because the challenges facing those different groups look really different. Far north, you know, 90, 95% of three and four-year-olds are taking up their free entitlement. They're getting funded hours from the government. Possibly they're paying a little bit on top of that for meals or nappies or, or things like that. But by and large, they're getting quite a bit of childcare and early education at quite a low cost to the family. And when you look at the younger children, that's where you really see those price increases going through the roof. Often those younger children or those full-time hours or those center-based care arrangements, those quite particular cases, those are the ones that end up being picked up in those international comparisons. So it is pretty hard to look at this and understand what's going on even within England, let alone once you start to try and compare internationally. What is true is that the government has increased spending on the early years quite significantly particularly compared to what's happened at other stages of education and to what's happened to public services more widely. But a lot of that has come through this increase in the number of free hours that providers are expected to deliver, both the 30-hour entitlement and the two-year-old offer for disadvantaged children. And so if you look at what's happened in real terms to per-hour funding, there has been growth there, but it looks much flatter. And you end up with this kind of ratchet pattern where the government sort of ignores things for a few years, then realizes that possibly they've squeezed a bit too hard and, and they kick the funding rate up again, only to ignore it for a few years more. I think in the current circumstances where we've got really high levels of inflation, we've seen the minimum wage increase quite quickly, energy costs and food costs are going up too. That sort of lack of, of consistent policy intervention and consistent attention to the funding rate becomes more damaging. And that becomes a particular issue the more of the childcare market the government brings under its control. The more free entitlement hours you offer, the more funded hours you're asking providers to deliver at the government rate, the more important it is that you get that rate right because of the consequences for the rest of the market. So I think what we've seen in the last few years is that program expanding, but not necessarily so much attention on what is the right funding rate and are we really confident that we're on top of what this is doing in the rest of the market as well. And, and Neil, in terms of what it is doing in the rest of the market, when I mean, you suggest that your organisation has had to you know, draw your horns in quite a lot, but is that, is that happening more broadly? Are we, are we losing capacity? We've lost something like 16,000 providers in the last six years. Now, I accept that many of those providers will be, for example, childminders, but nurseries have also gone by the wayside. And as you've alluded to, Paul, we, we are part of that equation. We've halved our complement of settings. 
The big fear is that operators will be driven to provide care and education in the more affluent areas where parents can afford to cross-subsidize and in the areas where you would argue that you would get the biggest return on human capital investment, where you would argue that those children need more support in terms of education and care. That's where providers will be closing their doors because they will be squeezed. And the inevitable situation is that it completely contradicts the so-called levelling up agenda. So we have that working at one side of the equation, and yet we have actually a funding model that steers you away from supporting vulnerable, disadvantaged children. So yet it's a warped, it's a warped position. Even, I would say this, even some of the support programs that Christina referenced when she first spoke. So if you take tax-free childcare, the reality is that yes, you can put in 8,000 pounds and you get 2,000 additional funding from government, but you have to have the money to put that in in the first place. The most disparate families are struggling to have a penny in their pocket at the end of the week. So cash flow is absolutely critical. So it seems like it completely, again, contradicts the levelling up policy. It cannot be right that you have a 30 hours program, i.e. where you get an additional 15 hours of free childcare, where both parents can earn up to just short of £200,000 between them. So literally, they work a couple of hours per week, and they get an extra 15 hours of free childcare. And yet, if you're on minimum wage, you have to work 16 hours. How is that morally right, never mind technically supporting disadvantaged families? That's the warped system that I'm afraid I think we have. Well, I guess that comes to the the, the, the real issue about what the system's for. I, if, if it is about helping everyone in work with the costs of childcare, then you have one system. And if it's about supporting children from less advantaged households to educate them and give them a best chance in life, then that's another system. And I think what you're describing is that sort of tension between those two systems. So, so Christine, what's our sense of how, how well the system we've got at the moment is achieving the second of those, that supporting the children from less advantaged backgrounds and giving them that step up in life that things like Shorestar, for example, were intended to do? I think when we look at the evidence for the childcare system in England, it does look like a little bit of a case of we've tried to do two different things at the same time and we've kind of ended up shortchanging ourselves on both of them. If you look at the evidence for helping mothers back into work from the 15-hour universal entitlement, it looks like there's not really much of an effect there. If you look at the evidence for supporting children's development through the school system from the 15-hour entitlement, there's there's some benefits in the first couple of years of school, but they're generally pretty small, certainly in comparison to the kinds of benefits you get from from systems like Norway, where you know you can you can trace those benefits out through children's when they're 50 or 60 or 70 years old. They're that big and that persistent. Part of that, a big part of that, is about the funding of the system and whether providers are adequately resourced to do these these things. But I think it is sometimes a little too easy to focus exclusively on the money and say, oh, if we had, you know, unlimited budgets, if we were controlling this, it would all be absolutely fine. Because the reality is that the way you design a childcare or an early year system 
to support child development might actually look quite different to the way you design one to help parents to work. If you're really looking for child development, then the evidence we have suggests that you target very disadvantaged children. You have potentially shorter hours. So you might have two or three hours or four hours a day in care. You have that quite consistently. So the child goes most days of the week and doesn't really have a lot of flexibility on when they're going to go and when they're not going to go. And you have something that's very focused on, on high quality, but short and relatively intensive days. Now, that sounds great for a child, but if you're a parent or a mother thinking about, well, hang on a second, my job does not look like that. You know, I can't drop off my kid, go to work and then show back up two hours later and and expect my employer to be okay with that. What I need is long days, flexible days, pretty cheap, accessible, affordable and and childcare that I can kind of flex around the needs of my job. If if my employer doesn't want me that week, maybe my kid doesn't go to childcare and I don't pay. And so I think those those design constraints for me are more and more pushing towards the idea that we need to look beyond just what we would call the childcare system. So Paul, uh, in, in your question, you mentioned the idea of Sure Start. This was a, a big program of kind of one-stop shops for parents with kids under the age of five, childcare services, but also parenting classes and health and parental employment support, all kinds of stuff brought together under one roof. And we show that that was actually a really good thing to do for children's development. Similarly, parenting programs where, like the Family Nurse Partnership, where you go into a disadvantaged family's home and over years you build up a relationship with the parents and you support them and you address the needs that they have and you help them to understand what they as the parents can do to support their child's development. Those are really impactful. And it makes sense if you think about it. Like if a child is going to spend 15 or 30 hours a week in childcare, that's great. But what's happening the rest of the time? If we can shift what's happening the rest of the time in the home environment, that has the potential to really help us support children's development. And so I think we can get a little bit too narrowly focused on the free entitlement, the subsidies, the tax credit, and the childcare system, and neglect the fact that actually we have other policy levers available to us, and some of those might be better suited to those tasks of child development, which would take a little bit of pressure off the childcare system from trying to make it do everything all at once and succeeding basically at, at very little of it. And it's fair to say, isn't it, that it's the targeted programs like Shorestar that have been cut over the last decade or so, and the more general support for childcare as childcare rather than early education, which is, actually has been increased. Yeah, what we've seen over the last decade or so is a real shift in the way that education spending for the early years is allocated. Free entitlement is, has really increased very quickly, but support, particularly through the benefits system, has been cut really hard. And so there's a real shift in the types of families who are able to access support from the government really away from those very low-income families and towards more of the working families in line with what we've been talking about, about these shifts in priorities. Sure Start, of course, is a different and, and even harsher story in the sense that the budget there fell by more than two-thirds since 2010, despite the fact that we now know that those centres were actually pretty effective. And what we've seen so far in family hubs is encouraging. It does look like the government is starting to realise that that kind of model can be useful. But the family hubs funding we've seen so far is a drop in the ocean compared to what we got used to under SureStart. And so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to claim that we've solved that policy challenge yet either. Ooh, you might have to help me and the listeners out here. What is a family hub? Well, Paul, actually, nobody really has a good answer to that <laughs> yet. Um, 
A family hub is meant to be a way of bringing together services for young children and and for for their families in a similar way to what SureStart was. But in terms of what the actual delivery model looks like, you know, is this going to be a physical building in the community where parents can go? Or is this going to be a website where we can badge some of the services that are already on offer and maybe add a couple of midwives in and, and call that a day? Those kinds of questions haven't really been answered yet. And a lot of that is being left up to individual local authorities and individual teams to kind of decide and find their own way. What I would say on that is, in some sense, that makes a lot of sense. It it helps local authorities to pick the policies that work best for them. On the other hand, if the central government funding isn't there to support one of those more intensive models, then it's not really fair to say that that's local authorities making the choice. That's kind of a choice that's being imposed on them. Neil, that that shift is one that you've seen over the last years away from this targeted provision. Absolutely. I mean, it is quite interesting. I just to go back to one of the points that Christine's raised, when we talk about free entitlement, the increases to free entitlement usually occur just before an election. So that probably tells you what the motivation is. Predominantly votes, I would suggest, rather than actually addressing the fundamental problem. And I think it goes back to the fact that we don't have a strategy, Paul. We don't have a strategy in this country in terms of medium or, or long-term, we don't actually have a short-term strategy. We tend to lurch from one crisis to the next. And if you ask ministers, what do you think parents should look for? What do you think they should receive in five years' time in terms of what should their costs be? What would we expect the workforce to look like in terms of its development, etc.? There are no answers whatsoever. And because we have no vision, we have no strategy, therefore we have no operational plan to achieve that. Interestingly, in other countries, they do manage to balance this. Is it about supporting parents return to work, feeling comfortable that their child is safe, that their child is educated? And is it about basically providing children with a good education? Other countries seem to balance that. And that's because they prioritize early years rather than think of it as an afterthought. If you go back to the pandemic, I can tell you that early years just felt like it was everything was, and this is not a criticism of schools, but everything was about schools, 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 schools. All the PPE went to schools. All the funding for support went to schools. Even the recovery program, it goes to schools. Early years is still not considered to be part of our education system. It's not considered to be part of our social infrastructure. And until we get that change in that mindset, it's difficult to see how things will differ from where they are at this particular point in time. It needs somebody to go, this is a priority. And I accept, you know, I'm always asked the question, well, where does the money come from? And actually, you probably are a better place to answer this question than certainly I am. But the reality is, it's about priorities. We spend tens of billions of pounds over budget on rail links and other areas of dare I say, infrastructure, is that more valuable than developing young children and supporting parents in work? I guess you would know what my answer would be. (laughs) (laughs) It's extraordinary, isn't it, the degree to which it's turned into a mess? Because, I mean, this isn't something that we can blame on deep history, because this is, in a sense, is the leg of the welfare state that's really in any serious way, only developed in the last 25 years. If we were talking 30 years ago, we would not be talking about all of these free entitlements and 
and the substantive share of state support for childcare that we've got now. We have had genuine change over the last 25 years or so, and an opportunity, therefore, to shape it relatively from scratch in a way that actually makes sense. But we seem to have failed to do that. And I think the I think the reasons that I'm sort of listening to are that that's a combination of consistent uncertainty, as it were, about what's trying to be achieved, and a move towards the popular or populist in the sense of, and it is remarkable how this is always in everybody's manifestos nowadays, towards helping that that, that large group of, of families in work with childcare and away from what I think was the original conception, which was very much about supporting children's education, and particularly those from less advantaged homes. So how, how do we move on from here? Is there anything we can learn from how other countries do this? I mean, what, what's the next step? It's quite interesting that the uh, Children and Families Minister recently announced that some of your listeners may be aware that there are proposals to change what we call the adult-to-child ratio. So in other words, allow educators to look after more children. And again, that was that's all connected with trying to reduce the costs of care. The reality is simply this, is that the minister is visiting other countries. And so my suggestion would be, rather than look at the lowest common denominators, i.e. just ratios, and I'll, I'll happily say a little bit about that if, you, if you'd like me to, Paul, but I would suggest look at how they invest in their workforce. Look at how they invest in their system. Look at how other countries acknowledge that education doesn't start when a child walks through the school gates, it is long before. And that, therefore, might give them some ideas as to what an infrastructure should look like for England, certainly, moving forward. The ratio proposal, again, is just evidence that it's, it's about balancing the books. And my fear is that children all of a sudden have become commodities and we don't think about the child. It is interesting, when this was first leaked from Downing Street, We released a survey to ask providers, what are your thoughts on this? A record response, 9,000 responses from providers in the first week alone. And they told us, and government knows this, that even if they were able to look after more children, i.e. bring in more revenue with the same number of staff, only 2% would consider passing that across, that saving to parents because they are so underfunded, etc. More importantly... 75% of their staff said that they would leave a setting if they changed their ratios because we have a recruitment and retention crisis that we have never witnessed before. People are leaving in droves because they are exhausted and they are undervalued. It is really ironic that the very day that Number 10 leaked this potential proposal that the head of Ofsted, Amanda Spielman, was on Radio 4 telling people that their focus over the next five years will be on the early years, telling people that young children's development had stalled and they need more support. So it feels to me that somebody has gone, what's the worst possible time that we could look at changing ratios? I know, let's do it. When Her Majesty's Chief Inspector tells us children need more support than ever, let's do it when we have a workforce that's leaving in its droves. How ironic. I just can't believe that anybody would consider this. But that's where we're at. 
Christine, would you like to come in, come in on that? I think we've definitely got the message from from Neil. If you if you were minister for a year, Christine, what would you be doing on this? Oh, I have a list as long as probably both of my arms and one of my legs as well. But I think if I were if I were in this space, what I would urge policymakers to be thinking about is first of all, reframing the way that they're approaching this sector. So the ratios point that Neil's brought up, that's kind of the latest in the series of announcement after announcement after announcement that doesn't really fit into any sort of coherent strategy that doesn't really tell us about where we're going or what we want to do. And, you know, if you want to do that, if you want to change ratios, then make the case for it. Look at the international evidence and, and embed that in some sort of strategy that talks about the early years workforce as a whole. Don't just pretend that it's somehow magically going to solve the cost of living crisis on its own. So I think that would be the first thing. The second thing is I really would like to see more focus on the different experiences that families have within the early year sector. There's a real tendency to talk about the early years or the preschool period as though it's one thing and to, in some sense, take the worst of everything. So look at, you know, Children under under the age of two have seen really huge increases in childcare costs. Children with three, three and four year olds, the problems are much more around what the right funding rate is for the free entitlement and whether that policy is delivering what we want it to be and whether we're getting good value for money for that. And so looking and being a little bit more nuanced about who's using the system at which ages and what their experiences are would help us to make policy that's a bit better targeted rather than kind of slapdash announcements that maybe sound good, but run the risk of messing up other parts of the system. And then the final bit, possibly slightly controversially, but, you know, we've talked a lot about the purpose of the childcare system being child development or being supporting parents to work. And and those are two really big and really important goals where actually the childcare system is front and center. Like what we do in the early years does really determine how we succeed or fail on those goals. But I've recently seen more and more government and and commentators trying to introduce a third goal, which is the cost of living crisis and families' budgets and what we need our early year system to do is relieve pressure there. For me, that is important. It's clearly important. This is clearly a pressure on families' budgets. But that's the kind of thing that we can address in other ways. We can look at child benefit. We can look at targeted transfers. We can think about giving people money in ways that don't affect the childcare system, the structure of what we're delivering, and don't make it harder than it already is and than it already has to be to achieve these goals that we're trying to with with this system that we have at the moment. So yeah, greater coherence, greater evaluation, and a little bit more honesty about what we're actually trying to do and and how long it's going to take to get there. Right. Well, coherence and honesty will be good right across government policy, one feels. We, we, we really need to finish in a moment, but I just wanted to ask one final question, which is about the organisation of the sector and where, where we started this kind of patchwork of um, local authority and private providers, mostly quite small, a few quite big providers. I mean, how much does that impact on the coherence of the system of the difficulty that government has working with it? Or is that actually... that there's no problem about that structure. It's really all about how government does work with it. And can we learn from how other countries have organised their systems? I think, in fairness, you you wouldn't have the system that we have. And I think everybody in the sector acknowledges that. But I think we have to accept that the infrastructure is in place and it's difficult to imagine that we will not be able to utilise that over the next sort of decade plus, to say the least. 
I would suggest this, and it's if you had independent assessment of whether the funding was adequate, etc., and you had it reviewed on an annual basis. So it wasn't down to the provider, it's not down to government, but you have an independent assessment and you pay a fair rate. Then you'd have more operators retain their position within the sector. They would stay there. We would have more nurseries, I would suggest, open at this particular point in time. You would then be able to regulate it effectively. Because at the moment, what we do is we turn a blind eye to the need to have to charge so-called top-up fees, extras, cross-subsidize, charges for one- and two-year-olds, etc., And government turns a blind eye because they know if they did anything else to regulate it, the market would collapse. It just couldn't happen. But if you have equity, you can then regulate it. Providers would feel happy. You're always going to have those parents you know, we've got it in, in, in secondary education where parents will pay tens of thousands of pounds for extras, whatever it happens to be, but at least we have a sound core offer. And so independence, and then you remove this argument, and a vision is where I think we have to go. If you as come back to this point, you have no vision, no strategy. Don't be surprised if in five years' time, you've still got the same darn mess as you've got today. Last word from you, Christine. I think we've talked a lot about challenges and we've talked a lot about the difficulties here. I think there are opportunities as well, but they're but they're linked in with challenges too. One of the things that the sector is going to be dealing with over the next 10, 15 years is a real decrease in the number of children that it's supposed to be looking after. And so when we think about capacity and when we think about funding, actually keeping the total envelope pretty close to where it is now but having a bit less pressure in terms of the number of children that has to serve, that's one way of perhaps slightly more easily increasing the funding rates that we've been talking about. And thinking about the capacity that we have, managing both the providers who exit, but also the providers who enter to acclimatize to that new smaller, smaller number of children will be really important too. But ultimately, I agree with Neil, what we need is is more attention and more consistent, sustained, strategic thinking about what the purpose of the sector is, how we're going to get there, and what other tools we have, like parenting classes, like SureStart, like the tax and transfer system, to try and achieve some of the other goals that we want as well. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there on a slightly hopeful note, I think, I'll just go back to Christine's three C's, complicated, costly, and constantly changing, which I remembered this time. And it strikes me from this conversation that there are two things underlying this. One is the lack of vision, the lack of strategic purpose across time in what this whole system is intended to be for, and clumsy attempts to make it achieve two and now perhaps three things, early education, childcare to help parents to work, and maybe dealing with cost of living as well, and uh, an underlying inadequate level of funding, which results in some of that complexity and creates uh, an issue where it's difficult to recruit the right people and involves a lot of cross-subsidy from people who are paying themselves, all of which sounds like it's eminently fixable from a government with a long-term and appropriate vision. And as Christine said at the end, maybe not even a lot more money if we're going to have, as we expect, uh, fertility rates falling over the next few years, and therefore the number of children in need of this provision 
falling. But we're going to have to leave it there after what's been, I think, one of the most fascinating discussions that we've had on this podcast series. Fantastic input from Christine and from Neil. So thank you very much indeed to them. And thank you for listening to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. We'll be back in a fortnight and do subscribe as well. Thank you very much. <laughs>